0: As you're seated, we turn in the scriptures to Isaiah chapter 12, to the preaching of God's word taken from verses 1 to 3. Isaiah 12, verses 1 to 3. This in context is the Lord promising to his people who were entertaining and experiencing captivity, a liberation to come. And yet he's anticipating not just the temporal deliverance from Babylon, but the ultimate deliverance from that spiritual bondage of sin and death. And so these three verses, once more, Isaiah 12, 1 to 3. And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee, though thou wast angry with me. Thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation, I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. These verses before us this afternoon, you'll notice just the basic relationship of these three verses. God is saying, there's a day coming when you, my people, will say, Lord, I will praise you. And, of course, we praise and give glory to that which is greater than we are and indeed has shown kindness to us. And notice the expression, though thou wast angry with me. That would have been experienced, of course, in the captivity and, oh, the sights that are there recorded for us, for instance, as one uh, captivity of others in Jeremiah's lamentations and the trials that there are suffered. These things, indeed, heavy and difficult. And yet, notice, thine anger is turned away. And thou comfortest me. You remember that the captivity and captivities came because God's people had turned from him. And this after many uh, approaches of mercy, reproof, encouragement, promises, gifts, graces, mercy upon mercy, and yet God's people still turned from him. And so God brought discipline against them. And yet the discipline was not to last forever. And even here it testifies of the day that would come When that anger would cease and comfort would come. And what an expression follows. Here's the bedrock and the explanation of it all. God is my salvation. It's not just God is my savior, that's true. But it's God is the sum total of my salvation itself. It's not just that he has given me something. He is that something. Think of Jesus as the name was given him, thou shalt call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus is a form of the word Joshua. Jehovah saves. Or even Jehovah is salvation. And the sum focus of the scriptures lights upon Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God and who is our salvation. What follows that is trust, faith, comfort. I'll not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah, literally, Jehovah, Jehovah, is my strength and song and has become my salvation. There's the cause of rejoicing. You see it. I will praise thee, for you have turned from wrath to kindness. To save me and even to give yourself to me as my salvation but notice the verse that follows in light of this with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation now this is not speaking as you're well aware of literal water but the wells of salvation that supply of salvation shall be drawn out unto us perpetually He is our salvation, so we'll draw out from him all the riches and provision that our souls require. Well, brethren, we've had the privilege of seeing the sign and seal of covenant of grace in the Lord's Supper this morning, all of which presents Christ to us as our salvation. And this afternoon, it is our privilege to consider That grace given us and the gratitude that follows. Consider then three things from the text before us to assist us in our understanding of Scripture. One, that we are delivered by grace. Two, that we are gladdened by grace. Three, that we are sustained by grace. You'll see that throughout this portion, and of course the whole of the Bible confirms the same. It's not that we begin by grace and continue by our own strength. It's not that we begin by grace and then we say to God, thanks for the start, I'll take it from here. It's not that God starts us up and we sort of go on in in our own inertia that follows. It's the whole of the life of the Christian is one unending testimony of the gracious supply of grace through Christ from beginning to its end. And even on the last day, the Christian shall then enter into glory and grace shall turn to glory. And yet the fixation of the Christian will ever be upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Worthy is the lamb. And what did this lamb do? Well, the resounding praise of heaven will continue. Who washed us from our sins in his own blood. The fixation of the Christian forever is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Well, firstly, then notice the text holds before us that we are delivered by grace. Of course, we can see this as there's the testimony God was angry with us. This might startle the contemporary age to realize that there's such a thing as a holy and real anger of God. We realize that many evangelical churches would shudder the thought and would deny the thought that God is angry with anyone. And yet to do that, there has to be the purpose closing of certain portions of Scripture. We see, for instance, Psalm 5, Psalm 8, we see it here, the testimony. God is angry with those who sin against him. This does not mean that he is not moved in mercy to extend to them Christ Jesus, but it does tell us that God despises our sins, and such is the despising that he warns us, At times with the rod he afflicts us at other times he convicts us he sends forth those who would indeed reprove us it's an interesting part of the ministry of the new covenant as Paul says to Timothy preach the word but he doesn't say just tell them comfortable things you know tell them God loves you tell them the good things tell them the sweet things tell them the glad things he says reprove correct admonish. Those are heavy words. And yet none of that is in any way contrary to the fact that God is being generously kind to us to seek out such things. Well, what is the cause of such displeasure toward us? Well, it's not the same with men. Men have petty reasons to being displeased with others. God has holy reasons. God has a holy law, which is, as Paul says, good. It is just. It is holy. And when it is that we turn against God's law, it's not just that we're violating some principle, it's that we're showing that deep-rooted in us is a despising of what is good and just and holy. Now, the law is the revelation of God's will. Make this connection in your mind. When someone violates the Ten Commandments, what they are inexperienced saying is that I don't care about the good, holy, and just law or the good, holy, and just God of the law. I care about my own dispositions. And God looks upon that with a just vengeance that he would consume us if it were not for his mercy. He was angry. But notice it says that thou wast angry. It was the case. It's not the case anymore. For your anger is turned away and thou comfortest me. Now you can search as long as you want for a cause within us for the change of his anger to comfort, but you won't find it. What you find instead, as the verse before us holds forth, is that God is my salvation. The change from divine anger to the expression of divine blessing is not because of you. It's not because of me. It's because of God's grace. This doesn't deny that there's not a change in us. For there is conversion of the sinner. But that raises the question, why? Is ever any sinner converted? Of course, we have the answer in multiple places, but one that is quite familiar to many in our own age is from Ephesians in chapter 2, when, as many will have it memorized, will remember there at verse 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There are some today who would say, well, yeah, see, it is by grace, but it's also through faith and we've contributed something. The problem with that is not only the neglect of many other passages, but this passage in particular, for what Paul says of, it is the gift of God, refers back to both the faith and the grace, the whole package is a free gift. The one who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ believed because God freely gave it to them. God turns his anger because he gives his grace to us. And you'll remember that he doesn't turn his anger off. That's not the way that God has been pleased to satisfy his anger. It's that he turns his anger from us and he placed it upon his beloved son. The cross of Jesus Christ is the display at one and the same time the display of his vengeance against sin and yet his provision of a gracious substitute who consumes the wrath of God on our behalf. That's why the passage says, God has become my salvation. He is my salvation. What does this mean? The grace by which we are delivered is the grace of God. The whole arrangement is graciously given by God, and it centers upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God. The whole work of our deliverance is a gracious working of God on our behalf. Where is it that we enter into the equation? Well, here's one place we enter in. We're the ones who sinned. We're the ones who deserve the judgment. We're the ones who deserve to be consumed. But here's the other part. God has been pleased to place Christ in our place, that Christ should endure what we deserved, and that we should receive what Christ has earned. And so as we considered this morning, Christ says, as it is, that he paid back, he restored that which he took not away. Isaiah 53 tells us so beautifully that he was chastened for our peace and he was bruised for our iniquities. All of this is by God's divine and gracious arrangement. The anger that was upon us has been placed upon Christ. And Christ has satisfied divine justice. And now what is it that God does to us? He comforts us. What a blessing that is. Delivered by grace such that we may say, God is my salvation. Well, secondly, you'll notice that we are gladdened by grace. This grace that has delivered us, of course, in and of itself should make us glad that we no longer need to give an account for our sins, for Christ has answered them in the full. But it's not only because of the pardon and justification, which is by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Notice that it says in verse 2, That not only will I trust and not be afraid, but it is so that the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. And the expression of a song, of course, on its own could be indifferent. It may be a dirge. It may be a delight. But here in context, it's one of joy. For you'll notice what follows, therefore, with joy shall we draw water out of the wells of salvation the song that is being sung is a song of rejoicing and notice the song is jehovah the lord jehovah is my strength and my song you ever been weak through illness set aside on a bed of sickness your body is ravaged by fever your joints your aches they Uh, are are quite uh, pained and you're parched and all of these difficulties and then little by little perhaps healing sets in what happens oh what a relief perhaps in the middle of the night the fever breaks and all of a sudden you wake up and you say oh my body though it's weakened somewhat yet what a relief it is to be out of the difficulty of the fullness of the weakness of that illness Well, here notice, the Lord is everything to the believer. He is his strength and his song and his salvation. And it's God. Catch this very clearly. It's not God giving us something and then he sort of remains back. It's God giving us himself and saying, I am yours. You are mine. This is, of course, that covenant promise: "I will be your God, and ye shall be my people." But then we start to see this uh, unfolded more fully in the in the New Testament when we're told that our life is hid with Christ in God, and we find that Christ is now ours, and we are Christ's, and uh, He is our new identity, and uh, it's that He is our life and. Everything's consumed with Christ. All of this is held forth before us. And when we discern this, we understand why. There is a deep cause of joy. Because God has not given us trinkets. Do you know what he gives to the world? He gives trinkets. He gives little empty things that entertain and delight passing fancies. And yet in the end, Are meaningless and vain. Do you know what he gives to the Christian? He gives the only enduring and valuable thing there is ultimately to give, for he gives to them himself. It's stirring to read the account of martyrs of any age. And one thing they often have in common is they have discerned true value against its counterfeit. And so whether it's the early Christians standing before emperors and other rulers who are being warned, if you don't bow to me, if you don't burn incense to my image, if you don't acknowledge these gods and the idols and the temples, then I'll take your estate, I'll take your life, I'll take your family, I'll take your lands. And what a voice is often expressed and thus heard in the annals of history. Or they say, what do you take from me? But a world that will perish. What you can't take from me is the Lord God who is my salvation. You cannot take the source of my joy. You cannot take the source of my life. You cannot take my true and sound and lasting identity. Because you have no ability to take God from me. You may take comforts from my body, but you can't take comfort from my soul. You may take relationships from me in this world, but you can't take from me the Lord God, my salvation. You may take my lands and my place of living and my wealth and family and everything else, but you'll never be able to take the Lord God, my salvation. You'll never be able to take the hope of heaven and the reality of Christ and the forgiveness of my sins and the glory to come and the endless ages of unending glory. For God is my salvation. He is my strength. He is my song. Brethren, when you realize that your true value has nothing to do with your bank account, when you realize that your true riches has nothing to do with how large your family is, when you realize that your true value has nothing to do with the annual exam you experience from your doctor, when you realize that your true value has nothing to do with these things, you may at first be jolted and made anxious but then you need to realize well as that's not where my true value is where my true treasure is where is my true treasure it's in god who is unchanging who is eternal who is infinite who is good and who has become your salvation the sooner in this life that you learn to look away from all the transient things the world lusts for, the sooner you will discover the true source of lasting joy, gladness, and encouragement. No, of course, this does not mean that we do not receive his mercies with gladness. We give thanks for cups of water. We give thanks for Promotions, We give thanks for children and parents and siblings and food and drink and pleasure. All of these things. But we receive them with an open hand. And we let go of them with an open hand. While we rest in the arms of the Almighty. You see, brethren. The world doesn't understand the martyr. Here's the sad thing. Most Christians in the West don't understand the martyr. Most Christians in our zip code don't understand the martyr. Most Christians in your neighborhoods don't understand the martyr. Because the martyr has seen a world to come and says, why would I waste my life on a passing world when the world to come is already begun? By faith in Christ, my treasures are him and him only. Remember, as we considered last week, the converted one has a new treasure such that as the psalmist says in Psalm 23, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And on earth, whom do I desire beside thee? Brethren, that's a challenge to you and to me. Is it so that you can say, when it comes down to it, there's nothing I desire in heaven but God. And when it comes down to it, There's nothing I desire but God in this life. When it is the Lord opens our eyes to the true treasure and value of Christ, it is then that we'll see just how rich we are. Whatever the world takes from us, whatever the world gives us, it can neither make us poor nor make us rich in the things that matter because God is our source of joy. This is why, because, or why Paul says, as we read in uh, Philippians chapter 3, to say the same things to you, what is it that he says to them? Rejoice in the Lord. And why is it that Paul was able to himself rejoice in the Lord and call others to rejoice in the Lord? Because he saw that nothing was comparable to Christ. It is the knowledge of Christ that excels everything else. You can think of this comparatively. You know, you you get your hands on some artifact that seems special. And you talk about it and then someone else ups it and says, well, that is special. But I, you see, you know, that's a mere... You know, bullet from World War II. Well, I have the machine gun from World War II. Well, that's important. But I have the flag that flew over this battle in this world and or this war and so on. And everyone's trying to up one another. They think of sports records. Look how many home runs were hit here. Well, look how many home runs were hit by this person. Look at the strikeout rate. Look at that. And everything's comparing one another to the other thing. And so that ultimately, there's always someone who one's up, one's up the other, one ups the other. Similarly, it's like, you know, oh, my child did this. Well, let me tell you about my child. Oh, when I was young, I did this. Let me tell you what I did when I was young. And there's this constant competing about who's going to one up the other. Brethren, here is the end of all things. The only thing that excels everything is Christ Jesus. And you have Christ. Get that in your mind. The only thing that excels everything is Christ Jesus and as a believer you have Christ. For a moment, consider what that means. Whatever else you don't have, you have the best thing. Whatever else you do have, you have Christ who excels all other things. Christ has been given to you as your salvation, and so it is only right that you would rejoice in Christ Jesus as your strength and your song. We sang earlier that we would declare and testify of his works. Why would we do so? Well, some of us would say, well, I have to do it. I must do it. How do I do it? Why am I going to go about it? But the heart that's glad about it doesn't ask those questions. The heart that's glad about it goes and tells. Because there's an overwhelming delight in these things. We just need barely the door to crack. And our mouths open and speak of Christ. You know, you have people that have their hobbies and their interests and you know as soon as oh, we are gonna have dinner with so-and-so somewhere along the line this is going to come up and sure enough some s- close or distant matter is raised and instantly the person's off and running talking about their hobby and they go on and on and we say well here we are for the next few hours and so on why do they talk about those things they're consumed with it they spend their time about it we have People who are consumed with sports. And you know what's going on? They're watching football Saturday. They're watching football Sunday. They watch all the reports Monday through Friday. They talk about it at work. They follow all the reports. Why is that their life? Because they're consumed with it. And they can't go for 10 minutes without talking about it. And this for what? Brethren, you have Christ Jesus the whole of every blessing in this life is infinitely beneath what you have in Christ Jesus. Surely, you ought to be full of the melody of rejoicing in Christ. And people ought to say, we know what's going to come when that person comes over. We know what's going to be talked about when that person's in my life. They can't help but sing of Christ. Read of R- Richard Wormbrand and others who suffered in the Soviet Union. And they go out and they preach and then they get arrested. And then they're put into these difficult, extremely difficult situations. And in the dungeon, they can't but speak of Christ. Richard Wormbrand recounts that there was a minister... Who was sharing with his fellow uh, mates in the cell about Christ and talking? And he's pulled out and beaten and knocked around. And he gets cast into the cell again, bloodied. And he stands up finally and says, Where was I? And he preaches Christ again. And Wormbrand comments and says, We had a good relationship. They loved beating us, and we loved preaching about Christ. That's the way of seeing the treasure. It doesn't matter what comes to us because my heart now lives for Jesus Christ. He is the only thing that matters. You read Voice of the Martyrs, you see the same thing. A woman gets the scriptures. she gets converted, she knows, so soon as I mention this, I risk my own parents beating me, killing me. And yet she says... As precious as my parents are, Christ is more precious. Some of you have siblings, children, parents that are unbelievers, and you fear upending a meal and displeasing that relationship if you mention Christ. Brethren, You have the best treasure. And it's also the treasure your parents, your children, your siblings, your co-workers need. But if I say this, I might lose that relationship. If I say that I might lose this job. What you won't lose is that which is most important. When it is that we see the fullness of what he is to us. He has become our salvation. Then it is that we will be glad and consider it an honor to suffer for him. If you've not read the accounts of the Marian martyrs, those who suffered under Bloody Mary, Nicholas Ridley, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, and others, you've done yourself a disservice. And you ought, this evening, to go home and search their accounts, their dying words, and how with eagerness they come to the stake And they say how I've longed for this day that I who am unworthy should be counted, given this privilege to suffer and seal my testimony in my blood for the Lord Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. 21st century, read that and say these people were off their rocker. You know, if they were a bit wiser, they could have done more for the kingdom of God. If they had just sort of hushed up, compromised here, been a bit more wise there, they could have done a bunch more they would look at us from heaven and say, you're out of your mind. You don't understand where true riches are. Christ is the only thing worth living for. He's the only one worth dying for. If he should ever cause me to be a martyr, they would say, as he did, I saw it to be my great privilege to spend and be spent for Christ. There is no vanity In that, they embraced it as a lover embraced another lover. Because they loved Christ Jesus. Well, Thirdly, sustained by grace. Brethren, whatever the Lord has ordained for us regarding the end of our life, we do see this. That he has ordained for us, that he who is our salvation having delivered us, he who is our song having gladdened us, is also our provider to sustain us. Therefore, with joy, shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. One of the first things that is established when it is a military unit goes forth a distance or when frontiersmen were going forth to new land was to establish where are we getting water? Why is that? Because if you don't have that, however else uh, well-apportioned or supplied you are, you're going to run out of anything else that matters. Water is of the greatest need. And here, there is this use of that image, water, to impress upon us the great provision of salvation. You can have food galore, but if you don't have water, you're going to die. You can have money beyond others. But if you don't have water, you're going to die. Well, such is salvation that if you don't have that, you're the loser. Your life is wasted. But brethren, sometimes as Christians, we think, well, I was saved. You know, when were you saved? I was saved back in 1985. I was saved back in 1992. I was converted in 2001. It was then that God saved me. All of that may be true, But here's the great thing of the Lord being our salvation. It's not that He was our salvation. It's that He is our salvation. With a perpetual and continuous and present reality. Notice, the Lord is become my salvation. God is my salvation. And so as He is that provision to us at all times... It's telling us we are to draw from Him at all times what our souls require. We live by His grace, and we live upon His grace, and we come by His grace to receive more grace, and we ever draw from Him freely as drawing from the wells of salvation. And is it not the case, Christian, and however you can look back and say, back then, oh, that was a spiritual high and what riches God provided me and how he afforded to me the knowledge of his covenant. And there was another season when, where I was brought low through trial and difficult providences. He gladdened my heart. All of those things are true. But brethren, Christ is yours always. He is yours right now to live upon him by faith. And sometimes we take right things and we turn them to a wrong end. Bible reading. If you don't have a regular plan of taking in God's Word daily, that's a deficiency on your part. It needs to be corrected. If you don't take in God's Word daily, you're stunting your own advance. However... If you only approach the reading of the Bible in your daily fashion as something you must do and need to do and it's right to do, you're actually missing out on the point. The point is to take it as the means of grace it is to draw from Christ and say, fill my soul. I don't just want to check off and say, look at the habit I've established on this habit tracker. Monday, Tuesday, oh, Wednesday, I missed Thursday, Friday and so on. And going through, No. It's that I'm approaching it every day as one who needs to drink water every day. I must have Christ. I must have Him. You know, we turn the faucet on and water appears. You go back 100, 200 years, people would look at that with amazement. And yet, they would have gone out to the well, to the spring, and they would have gotten their water. The point is, They do it not to say, you know, at some uh, productivity meeting, well, how faithful are you in getting water each day? You know, or is it every day you're doing that? You know, no one would ask that question because it doesn't relate. It doesn't make sense. Everyone's getting water each day because they need it to live. That's the point of Christ to us. We go to him in his word because we need him. We must have him. If He doesn't supply us His grace, we wither away. If we turn Bible reading into a mere habit, we've missed the point of reading the Bible at all. If we turn singing of Psalms into a mere habit, we've missed that and the purpose of it. Yes, we have it as a habit, but we do it regularly not to look at the long string of uninterrupted consecutive tickings of the box, but because our souls need it, and without it, we wither away. Think of this for a moment. Christ says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He that abides in me, and I in him, the same shall bear much fruit. He says, abide in me, catch this, and my word in you. There is the abiding in Christ by means of His Word. The Word is a means of grace by which we draw from Christ and we fill our souls on the provision of His promises. We're sharpened in our understanding by His commandments and His example. We're regularly put to death by His cross and made alive by His life. Christ communicates to us the riches of his grace through the means of his word. And so he sustains us day by day by day, graciously supplying our every need through the riches of his salvation. Brethren, if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you cannot but want to taste more. No one says, oh, that tastes good, take it away from me. No one says, ooh, I'll sample that and oh, that's the one I really like, but I'm not going to take it. As soon as we taste it and we like it, we say, that's the one for me, give me more. The things that delight us draw us. This is why we have people with all sorts of issues with their eating habits and drinking habits and Uh, their relational habits, they find some pleasure in those things and they can't say no to it. Well, here is something wherein the Christian is to find the greatest pleasure, the greatest delight, and there's no danger in saying yes to it because we're saying yes to the provision of grace through Jesus Christ, which gladdens our hearts. True Christianity is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's a pursuit of life by Christ walking in his commandments by his grace in fellowship with him because it's become our delight. We long and delight to have Christ. I count all things but dung and I've suffered the loss of all things. Well, Paul, that's pretty extreme. You know, maybe you've gone off a little bit there. Maybe tone it down and come back. Paul would look you in the eye and say, it's not extreme at all. Because I have the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Everything else is a waste of my time. Because I have Christ. I live by Christ. I love Christ. He loves me. All I want is Jesus Christ. Now brethren, this can lead us to an inappropriate way of approaching life it is right for us with this to long for the glory to come but we should remember that the Christ we love has placed us in this world and his sovereign purpose to serve him and if that's what Christ has done then we ought to live out all of our days by him and for him David Brainerd writes in his journal that he had come to a point in his life where he had become overwhelmed with the emptiness and vanity of the world that he said, I wish I would but die so that I can be done with the vanity of this world. And he said, I discerned that within that was actually an unwillingness to subject myself to my Savior's will. My Savior would have me live here. He would have me serve here. And until he calls me home, I'm to find it my delight to serve him here. And yet he wrestled, how can I live here? This world of a deserted wilderness. How can I live with gladness? And he discovered, I must have. Regular intercourse with Christ. I must draw from Him daily. I must spend time with Him. He must supply all that I need. He must provide me all that is required. If I don't have Him, I'm as a branch cut off that withers up. But as I abide in Him, then it is that I bear much fruit. Brethren, That's the same for you. I pray to God in sincerity, regularly for you as members for you as Christians, that you would see that this world is vanity. It's a sincere prayer, especially in our culture. I pray that God would so weigh glory into your heart that you say there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing that is like the glory of Christ. And yet I pray sincerely by God's grace that as he puts that hunger in you, that you then come to see until he calls you home, It is His purpose for you to live in this world for one solitary purpose, to promote His praise. And the only way that you can do that is by regularly feeding upon Christ Jesus. We've seen it and mentioned it many times before, but brethren, it's so full of instruction and help and guidance to us. When Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, are as the spring, the wellspring of salvation. And by them, we commune with Christ. By them, we draw His provision. By them, we take them in. They funnel to us His supply. And as He holds it out to us, we thus receive the riches of His provision, Christ being made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption christ is all things for us that we may live a life that denies ourselves denies the world denies this life and follows christ the only way of doing so is by daily habitual regular fellowship and communion with christ by faith do you have that Don't show me your Bible reading plan. That's not my question. Don't show me your journal. That's not my question. Don't show me the list of Bible verses you've memorized. That's not my question. Don't show me how many Sabbaths you've not missed church. That's not my question. My question is in all of those things, do you have Christ? Are you living by Him? Do you even know what it means? to fellowship with Christ in the reading of his word. Do you know what it means to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in the fellowship of Christ, to commune with him? Because if you don't know that, then you're not taking in the well of salvation, drawing from his depths of love and feeding your souls upon his rich supply. It's no wonder that we so often wither while we yet maintain a form of godliness. It's because we become guilty in part of denying the power thereof because we fail to look to Christ. McShane said so memorably, for every one look to self, I must take 10 looks to Christ. Brethren, make that your practice, to look to Christ He discovered so clearly, so soon as I have conviction, I ought to flee to Christ freshly. So soon as I have need, I need to go to Christ with requests. So soon as I discover a promise, I need to beseech him for it and being provided to me that I might live by him so that then I might live for him. It's no wonder that those whom we acknowledge as industrious in the kingdom of Christ were most earnestly with Christ. Martin Luther, among many, spent literally hours each day in prayer. Hours. Hours in prayer. When was the last time? Just a simple question. When was the last time you spent hours in one day in prayer? Now we hear that and we say, well, then I'm just going to start praying a lot more. But you realize the reason he was praying is not to say I prayed for hours today. It's because he needed Christ. And so when he had particular difficulties, he said to Philip Melanchthon, I must spend more time in prayer today because I have so much to do today. What do we do? We have a lot to do. We say, well, I'll get to prayer tomorrow. You see, we've got it backwards. When the Lord draws us to live upon Christ, it's then that we will live for Christ. And that's what the passage is getting at here. He is the wellspring of our salvation. And we draw from him that we may then live for him who has become our strength and our song and our salvation. Oh, brethren, would you live for him? Then live upon him. Would you live for him? Then live by him. Draw from Christ, and as He supplies you His grace, you will then rejoice and serve Him in gladness. Would you stand with me for prayer?